0: I love the way that our uh, Puritan forefathers referred to Sunday. Um, this this phrase will probably bear a little explaining, uh, but they called Sunday the market day of the soul. Now, uh, there's some of you that, uh, I think there's a food service called market day, but I think the concept of a market day is probably lost on most of us. Back when society was a little bit more agricultural, not quite so metropolitan, people would bring their, uh, their wares, the things that they were selling, uh, the fat and calf, the craftsmanship that they would work on, and they would bring it to the town square for a market day. And so it was kind of a, a festival, <coughs> kind of a uh, ladies, a shopping bonanza, and it was not just the commerce that took place, it was the camaraderie, it was the, the mixture of both, both buying and selling. And, and being surprised at what kind of bargains you got. Uh, not really a um, garage sale or a yard sale, but kind of had a little bit of that feel to it. But it was the, the market day. It was the, the chance when you got to get the, the extra good stuff, to get the deals, and to have the opportunity to, um, the word we would use is fellowship with you know, people in your area, to catch up with you know, Farmer John that you hadn't seen for a month and ask him how things were going. And I go, what an apt illustration for what church life should be like. Uh, just the, in, the sense of anticipation that market day is not just one day a month. It happens once a week for us. We have the opportunity to be surprised with what we get to go home with. You know, what truths from God's word, what encouragement of soul that we have, uh, what, what relationships do we have. And uh, today, <clears throat> as we continue in our series about measuring twice, cutting once, one of the things that is a, a, a passion for us, when we talk about building strong families, Uh, How are you going to do that? What's a strong family look like? What's a strong faith family look like? What's a strong biological family look like? And I don't think that any of you would define someone as a strong disciple uh, who didn't have also a strong prayer life, right? I mean, a a disciple prays, he talks with his father. And yet this is one of those areas where we really do need the, the scalpel of the Spirit to examine us. And I'll I'll start with an anecdote that I think is is worth repeating. Uh, Several years ago, and I think this came from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Uh, Several years ago, there was a conference on prayer. Now, if you know anything about Christians, we have conferences on just about everything. Conferences on prophecy, conferences on the end time, you know, the um, conferences for, for whatever. Conferences on evangelism. So if someone shows up for a conference on prayer what can you probably assume about these people? They really like to pray. <coughs> you you have the, probably have heard an opportunity to attend a conference on prayer uh, and maybe that doesn't rank as high on your priority list as a conference on the end times or a conference on prophecy. So my assumption may be wrong is that people who show up for a conference on prayer are perhaps unusually interested in the practice of prayer. Yet when these people were surveyed, about their prayer habits, every single one of them, prayed for a cumulative total of less than 10 minutes per day. Now, I mean, that sounds shocking to me, and I can tell by the look on your face, it's shocking to you as well. 10 minutes a day, and these are people who are interested in prayer. So what does that mean for the rest of us mere mortals? If you add it up all the time that you prayed, over the course of your day, would you crack double digits? You know what the answer is? Probably not. Probably not. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we pray, <coughs> but the best thing that we can do this morning is if we want to examine our lives and say, if we want to be strong disciples, we, it, you won't have strong families without strong disciples, and you won't have strong disciples without a strong prayer life. The best thing that we can do is to look at the words of our Lord himself when he gives us instruction on how not to pray and how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, uh, a beloved portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And we begin <coughs> by, by, by dealing with someone who really thinks that he is good at praying. And um, I could almost insert one of our names in there. Because, man, we're, we know how to pray, right? We're all good at praying. Uh, the truth is we charge ourselves with a much higher level of attainment than we've actually gotten to so here's a guy who um, it's not true prayer it's really just what jesus would say is dead air a guy who thinks that he's good but he's a really bad model so how do you know if you're modeling prayer well well jesus begins with uh, the first of two admonitions or warnings and the very first one is in your prayer life don't be fake Don't be fake. Well, I'm not fake. Well, let's hear what Jesus has to say. Chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by people. I assure you, they have got their reward. But when you pray... Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. <coughs> Don't be fake. And the illustration he gives are these, this person or this group of people who think that they really excel at praying because their praying is done in public, and it's done in such a manner as to call plenty of attention to themselves. Now let me be really clear we have started i started off our service with a prayer um ed led us in our offertory prayer there is nothing that is intrinsically wrong with public prayer right like praying in public corporately there's nothing wrong with that however there can be because once you put other people in the room what are you thinking about while you're praying are you thinking about having a con an honest conversation with god or are you thinking about, hmm, I wonder how everybody thinks I'm doing up here, you know? It's almost like you can see the ticker tape running, you know, like the stock market, you know? Oh, they didn't like the Our Father, but they like the, you know, help us in our weakness part. They didn't like this, they didn't like that. <clears throat> when you're praying publicly, the presence of other people perhaps influences your motives, right? I mean, this is not like rocket science we're talking about. It, it, it becomes a problem. And so he says, don't be like this guy because we have to remember that prayer is first and foremost communication between you and God. And I think what makes people powerful prayers is when they can have that personal conversation with God and you get a chance to listen and you know that they don't care that you're there. They're not paying attention. They're having a conversation with Dad. You just get to eavesdrop in. The problem is when... We act like we're talking to God, but we're really kind of talking to everybody else. We're doing it to get um, kudos, pats on the back. Man, you're such a good prayer. Prayer is for God first. And I think if we get that right, then the model that we set for other people as they watch us pray, then it's right. But when other people are in the room, it, it's, it's potent- there's potential for our mode of to be messed up, and then our modeling is not what it needs to be. So Jesus says, in order to combat fakeness, which not all public prayer is fake, but he says to develop healthy habits of prayer, what's he say to do? He says, don't do it on the street corners. Like the street preacher, when you're going to the Carolina Panthers game, and the guy's, you know, kind of laughing about the fact that everybody's going to hell, you know, not the most effective methodology. He's saying, there are some people that pray like that. They want to be ostentatious and gaudy, and they want to do it in front of everyone. He says, instead of praying like that, what should you do? He says, you should go into your private room, and you should shut the door. Now, every, every mom and dad, um, no matter how small your domicile may be, uh, a trailer, an apartment, or a house, every mom and dad, when they need to have a conversation, and they don't need little ears to hear, has a private place that they go to. Now, some of you, it may be a really small room with a commode in it, that may, be, that may be your private place. So let me just say, that, that, that's really good that that's a private place for you. It needs to be a private place. There's nothing that happens in that room that needs to be public, okay? Just leave it in the water closet. Um, but most often, you hear people say, oh, you're supposed to go to your, your prayer closet. Well, I don't know if you've seen my closet. There's not room for me, um, let alone another article of clothing or shoes. Um, so we don't have a prayer closet. A better translation of this is your private room. So where is your private room to which you shut the door, and now the kids know they can't come in? It's your bedroom. Well, I don't know that they had bedrooms in the first century, but even within the house there was a, a private room. There was a place where they could go and not be in public because the business that you have to do with God is, is personal. So he says, instead of doing it publicly, go someplace private. Why? Because you remove the motivation of trying to speak in such a way that you impress other people. So your motivation is purified because just, it's just you and God talking without the obstacle of other people evaluating uh, your prayer. And it also is focused. You know, if we were quiet here for just a few seconds... Is it awkward yet? I'm surprised somebody didn't cough. Oh, there it was. Somebody was waiting. I knew it. (coughs) Oh, it got quiet. I can't clear my throat now. Um, It's amazing what you hear. Anybody find that you get distracted in worship? Like if you sit in the back, you watch everybody fidgeting in front of you. You know, nodding heads or, you know, they drop the pen or they do something like that. It gives you a chance when you're private to be focused and to not have distractions and to have a purity of motive. These people that are praying in verse 5 and 6, they really rather like the attention that they get for having a conversation with God in public. And so here's a truth, a maxim that I think is true. If you prefer public prayer over private prayer, I have to believe it's because man's praise is more important to you than God's approval. You would rather get the pat on the back and Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. But he says, for those who pray in secret, your Heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. It is not so much an issue or an emphasis on place as it is for attitude and intimacy. Having that conversation with God. So he begins by saying, hey, here's how you don't want to pray. Don't be fake. He continues by saying, number two, don't be formal. Don't be formal and he's not talking about how you dress you know whether you're wearing a tux or a suit and tie or cutoffs or jeans or whether your feet are in sandals or sneakers or dress shoes listen to what he says in verses seven and eight when you pray don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard because of their many words don't be like them Because your Father knows the things that you need before you ask Him. Man, that's a crazy thing. God knows what you need before you ask Him. So why pray? Like, just do telepathy. You know, I'm sending you a message, God, that you already know, so we're all good. Don't need to pray. He says, don't be formal. we've kind of dealt with the motive, and we've dealt with the where. The motive needs to be God first, and the... uh, the, 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 um, place needs to be private now he deals with what to say and here's what he says this is good He says, don't you don't have to be wordy you don't have to be long-winded there is no fancy rhetoric you don't go okay (coughs) let us let us pray lord i beseech you in my opening paragraph with great formality for you to rain thy mercy down upon us let me establish my prayer points in paragraph number one Paragraph, 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 paragraph. Paragraph two. Paragraph, 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 paragraph. Bring it home with a great conclusion. Blessed be thy name, Holy Father. Uh, rain thy mercy upon us until thy come again. There, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with having a formula. There is something wrong with being stuck in a rut. And he's saying you don't have to be forced into a particular box of rhetoric. Have genuine conversation, not a gaudy display of how many King James words you can fit into a two-minute prayer. He says, here, you got to understand, too, that when you're praying, you're not trying to convince God of anything, and you're not bringing something to his attention that he doesn't already know. Hey, God, in case you didn't get this, I had a test with the doctor this week. Can you make sure that wherever it's floating out in doctor land that it comes back clear? You're not not convincing him of something uh, he needs to be convinced of. You're not telling him something, something that he doesn't know. And friends, think about this. Prayer becomes very hard if you think that you've got to convince God of anything. They think God will hear him because of their many words. It's almost like God's like, oh my goodness, i got other things to do, Dania. Can you wrap it up? He's going to give you what you want just to get you to be Quiet. That sounds more like parenting. That doesn't sound like God. He doesn't do that. And so, you know, you think about this. You think about the prophets of Baal versus Elijah. They are trying to get Baal's uh, attention in this battle of the gods. It's like, you know, the royal rumble, royal rumble extraordinaire. Who's going to win? Is it going to be Baal or is it going to be Yahweh? And so they, they, they do their prayers. Pray, and they're praying loud, and it's a, a bunch of them. And uh, they're like, hey... Um, what was that? Oh, nothing. He must not hurt us. Let's do it again. So they get their dance going and they're they're praying loud. And they're like, all right, all right, Baal, hear us. Oh so Elijah goes, Maybe he's going potty. You think maybe like maybe he's on a trip and he doesn't have his cell phone with him? You could 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 Baal be kind of indisposed for a second? Is that his problem? So they go, all right, now we gotta just, we got to demonstrate how fervent we are, so let's cut ourselves, and maybe now that'll get Baal's attention. And there's all of this noise and commotion and chaos. And then it's Elijah's turn, and he says, God, please, show him who you are. Fire from heaven! No, Austin, I think if I was Elijah... I would have had the most King james prayer you could have prayed. I would have worked like every point of the gospel into it. Father, remind these pagan idolaters that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that for whomsoever, you know, I would have, I would have Billy Grammed that prayer out uh, uh, to the nth degree. He says very simply, I know you as God. They don't. You do your thing. God takes care of it. No formality, just a conversation. Not saying, hey God, um, in my opinion, this would be a really good time for you to show up. Not that you need my advice. He's not informing God. He's not convincing God. He's just doing it. The point that he makes in all of this is that our prayer, number one, should be frequent. He says, whenever you pray, whenever you pray, whenever you pray, our prayer should be frequent. It should be explicitly for God, and it should not be forced. Frequent, for God, and not forced. And if your prayer life lacks in any of those three components, there's some remediation that needs to be done. Is your prayer life frequent? Is your prayer life for God, or is it for others? Is it forced, or is it, is it free? So he moves in the second part, to talk about how to pray, how to engage in true prayer. And he begins with, uh, really, just two points under this too. And he begins with a, a very fundamental issue. And he says this, that in true prayer, in verses 9 and 10, in true prayer, God is firmly fixed in the crosshairs. God is firmly fixed in the crosshairs. Now, I just used a word that is a foreign word to maybe some of you ladies here, crosshairs. That is not, you know, when you wake up and have a cow lick. That, that's not crosshairs. Crosshairs are a hunting term. It is, um, is when you look through a scope, and there are lines, vertical and horizontal, that the, the idea is where the bullet hits the target is where you put those crosshairs. And if we, for a second, could take the scalpel of the Holy Spirit and just make a little incision right here, and take a peek in at your heart... Look and see what your heart has to say about your prayer life. How would your prayer life characterize whether... God is, is that, I think God is speaking to us here at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, Carolee, I'm so sorry. It happens to the best of us. Where's Henry Grantham? Is Henry here? Henry, you are off the hook, brother. <laughs> Henry, this is what, two years ago? Got a smartphone, wanted to follow along in the Bible app and he didn't know that he had his volume turned all the way up, and it started reading the Bible out. <laughs> so here's the best part. Henry has no clue how to turn his phone off, so he hands it, he hands it to Harriet. And everyone looks at Harriet like, what's the deal, Harriet? <laughs> she just gets up, walks, takes the walk of shame down the stairs and out the front door until she can figure out how to turn it off. So it happens. It happens. Here's the question. Again, if we could take the scalpel of the Holy Spirit make an incision right here and open it up to diagnose your heart, what would your prayer life look like? Is God in the crosshairs? And I'm willing to bet probably not because the way that I hear a lot of people pray is me, 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 Want, 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 want. Give, 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 give. So here's the question. Who's in the crosshairs of your prayers if you pray like that? Hint, it's not God. It might be who you think is God, but it's not God. And so he says, if you look at your prayers and can do some honest assessment, are you in the crosshairs? Or is God? Listen to verses 9 and 10. Therefore, in light of all the things I told you just not to do, don't be fake, don't be formal. Be frequent before God. Don't be forced. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love this. Three things that we see that make God firmly entrenched, firmly fixed in the crosshairs of our purse. Number one, we praise God for his character. We praise him for his character. Our Father in heaven man listen there's a whole sermon in there he's our father but he is our father in heaven father meaning not some somebody that we're terrified of i mean although that's always a good thing if you happen to be a dad you know you want a little bit of the fear of god in in your kid's life but it's a picture of power but also intimacy of familiarity but also strength of dignity and majesty he's sovereign our father imminent. In heaven, transcendent over all, your name be honored as holy. His name is not a title, his name is his character. And we are saying that we want his name to be honored, to be reverenced, to be respected. We want people to recognize who he is and to treat him with utmost respect. We want God respected. Dare I say this? even more than we want the flag respected. We want the Father respected, maybe even more than we want the President respected. There are titles and there are symbols that are worthy of our respect, but is there any other title, office, or symbol that should be more respected than God? Not if you're a Christian. And I hear people get really upset about stuff that happens in our culture, and they're so fixed on the symbol that they forget Who sits on the throne? God. And all of these other things that we deal with downhill begin with a lack of respect for the one who is our creator and redeemer. God-fearers fear everything else and respect everything else rightly. And so he says, we want God's name, we want his character treated with the utmost respect. And people who fear God put nationalism and heritage in their proper place not the top place but the proper place so prayers that are firmly focused on god praise his character number two uh, they long for his reign not from the sky r-e-i-g-n his reign is his rule in our hearts and in our minds in many ways kind of like a beachhead that is established think d-day d-day won the war it took, a lo- it took a little while for the battle to be, battles to be finished, but the war was decisively uh, controlled from that point on. Christ, in the same way, has made a beachhead through the church. And we're, we're, we're praying for Christ's kingdom to come, for his rule to grow. Now, let me, let me suggest two ways that God's kingdom grows. Number one, in your life. Is there anything that God that is off limits to God in your life? You know, it's kind of like you give God your house, but you keep a closet for yourself where you got all your junk that you don't want him to see. Then God, it, God doesn't have all the property. Is there a piece of property? Is there a closet? Is there junk that you've not turned over to him? Let me suggest, when you do that, God's kingdom grows. Number two, other people. God's kingdom grows when we share the gospel. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, that is not a prayer that you just voice without doing anything. You have the opportunity to be involved in kingdom expansion. And we're saying, God, we want your name to be so reverenced that we're willing to work now to help your kingdom to come quicker. Now. We want your kingdom now so that everyone will love and obey you as you deserve. Listen, in Philippians, when it says that every knee, and every, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, uh, yes, it's just too late for some folks at that point. We want that now. We want His kingdom to come. Number three, we work for His will. We praise His character. We long for His reign, and we work for His will. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love the comparison. How is God's will done in heaven? It is done fully. It's not done passably. It's not done, you know, C+. It's not done just enough to get by. It's not done by the skin of your teeth. It's not done just a hair's breadth. It is done fully. It is done well. It is done extensively. There is absolutely no disobedience. There is not one atom in heaven that is not fully obedient to the Lord. And we're saying we want to obey you now just as we will then. We want your will done now on earth as it is in heaven we want it done everywhere this is a missionary prayer there are people who don't love you and respect you so we're praying help us to be the workers for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done in everyone's life you can't pray this prayer and mean it without committing to a course of action that seeks it so don't pray it if you don't mean it jesus sets an example for this <clears throat> matthew 26 the garden of gethsemane he's fully aware that his crucifixion lies in front of him in just a few hours. And he prays, Father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken from me, take it. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Let me suggest this is the most dangerous prayer that you can pray. It's easy to pray for his name to be respected. Um, It's a little bit harder to pray for his reign. It's really hard to pray for his will. If you pray for his will, can he do anything in your life that he needs to do that is part of his will? Or do you just want the good stuff to happen? Can he break you to get you to the point where he needs you to be? Because Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine, and he died because of it. And you pray that prayer, and you might die a little bit because of it. Because there are things that need to be broken. There are new dependences and obediences that won't happen until you yield your will to him. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Oh, my friends, that is a key to a most precious lock that if you can get to a point where you trust God enough to do whatever He must do in your life, it is a painful but a glorious journey. So in true prayer, God is firmly fixed in our cross here. There's three ways. We praise His character. We long for His reign. We work for His will. In the second half, He teaches us that in true prayer, even the things that we request are worshipful. And I love this because you see a shift from you, your name, your kingdom, your will, to things that we need in verses 11 through 13. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen here's what i love about this this is not going to make sense but i think this is one of those lessons in prayer that is important we have just talked about how in our prayer life god should be in the crosshairs we should be praying you 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 your name your will your kingdom your way your glory your honor your respect your your job description you and here's the thing that's really funny and i don't know that this is a main point but it sure seems to be something that we need to hear. When you pray the yous, it turns your me's into we's. When you pray the yous, it turns your me's into we's. And here's what I mean about this. If we could lay out everything that you have asked for God in prayer on the screen. I said, all right, Jake, you're up because you're, you're the one closest to me. Here's Jake's prayer life and everything that he's asked for, everything that he wants if that was you, would you be embarrassed about anything that you've asked for? Oh, absolutely. You can ask for whatever you want. That doesn't mean you're going to get it. But again, we are so selfish. And the point is, if what you are praying for for yourself, you cannot in good confidence pray for every single brother and sister in Christ that you know, then you probably shouldn't pray for it for yourself. We are so selfish. And there is no first-person singular prayer in the model prayer. It's always third-person plural. We, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a sense in which we have to understand the corporate nature of what God has done for us in Christ. And I'll say it as provocatively as I can. Jesus didn't come to to save you. He came to save us. He He came to purchase his bride he came to build us into a family. He came to establish a church, not somebody who goes to church when they feel like it. Not Lone Rangers. The church, and listen, let me, let me talk to a few of you here that are trying to make decisions about committing to a church. I, I can tell you on good authority, God wants you to. He wants you to not be a perpetual church visitor. He wants you to be a contributing member of the body. And you can't do that as a visitor. You have to do that as, we, you know who's in your family and you know who's not. And so don't be ashamed to make a commitment to the church because the church with all of her warts and wrinkles is still most ultimately the only institution in the world that jesus has said from his own lips that he's in the process of building so uh, listen i love your job i appreciate whatever institution you work for the church is god's business and it's what he has said he will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it i want to be a part of that and i'm gonna be a part of it and i don't want to get in his way <laughs> if he's going to build it i don't need to He's going to do it. And so this whole idea of learning how to pray corporately, that whatever I'm praying for, I need to be praying for for Reed. I don't need to be praying for stuff that's so selfish that I'm like, well, no, I don't want Reed to have that. I want it. That's wrong. It's wrong. Several things that we see that he prays for. Number one, uh, and, and how our, pr- our prayer requests are worshipful, we see his hand on our physical provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread, not like stocked pantry. Now, I know, grocery shopping is a pain. Daily bread. Why daily bread? Well, he gave us our daily bread yesterday, and he gave us our daily bread the day before that, and he gave us our daily bread the other day. He's teaching us to be dependent upon him. And the thing that's awesome is all this past faithfulness that we can see day after day after day after week after week after month after month after year after year. Past faithfulness makes future trust easier. Okay, when has he been late? Anybody? When has he not delivered? When has he been unfaithful? So why is it so hard for you to trust him with your tomorrow when he has given you your daily bread today and he gave you your daily bread yesterday? He will take care of your physical provision. You may not like the answer that he gives. It may not be what you want, but listen, we're not talking about what you want anymore, right? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I find it interesting that he's asking for bread after he's just talked about his will and working for his will. Bread, bread requires work. If you're not going to work, you don't eat. The Bible says that someplace. And so there's a lot of people that want to the da- pray the daily bread prayer, but they don't want to pray, hey, help me to be a worker for your will. Don't pray for the daily bread unless you're willing to do the work, Right? I better stop or I'll get too worked up, get my blood pressure up. (coughs) Number two, we recognize our dependence upon him for our spiritual life. We recognize our dependence upon him for our spiritual life. It is not just bread that we need. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I find this interesting. Um, A lot of people will stop with the daily bread prayer. Hey, God, give us what we need. But if you'll notice verse 12 and verse 13, they both start with an and. Because daily bread is not enough. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forget those who have trespassed against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Daily bread prayers are not enough. That's why you have the and and the and. And the thing that's here is if you stop there, it is possible to have a loaf and completely miss out on life. What kind of life are you going to have if you've got daily bread? but you don't have forgiveness of your sins and you don't have the power to deal with the temptations that come in life. I love this. He's talking about spiritual provision. We have no physical life without daily bread. We have no spiritual life apart from the forgiveness that is granted to us in Christ. And let me be as blatantly explicit as I can. If you if if Christ is not on the throne of your life, you are a corpse. You are a mummy you are the walking dead because the Bible says that apart from Christ you are dead your spiritual life is zero there is no heartbeat there is no pulse there is no brain activity but through Christ we have life and it says because we have that life it changes how we act we don't forgive others so that God will forgive us right God, I, I forgave 10 people this week, so like you've got to wipe out all the bad stuff that I did. No, it says because he has forgiven us, that is the foundation, the overflow out of which we live to forgive others. And think about this, because this is really scary. What if it was the opposite? What if it wasn't Christ's work for us is the basis for the work that we do to others? Because God has forgiven us, we forgive others. Let's flip it around. And let's say God's forgiveness of you is dependent upon how you forgive others. How many of you have had a grudge? If God's forgiveness of you was dependent on how good you forgave others, eh, listen, this is not news to you, but every single one of you be going to hell. I'm so grateful that God says he's going to give it to me, and then I'm supposed to give it to others, not that I'm trying to earn it by forgiving others and hoping that he forgives me number three we understand our weakness and our need for his power lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one why do we need his power because we are weak and this is a prayer that demonstrates our creatureliness can't handle it his power can protect Isn't that an amazing thing? His power can protect. It can just not happen. But His power can also persevere. And so the principle here is that when we pray this prayer, uh, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliverance means you're in His grasp, and you are delivered from it. So it's not just protection from, it is protection through. I think jesus himself would have probably uh, appreciated after he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights to not now have to deal with the devil in his weakened state yet god preserved him through it i'm sure in the garden of gethsemane jesus would have said hey if we can skip this whole uh, sweat and blood it's cool with me but god preserved him through it and sometimes we think that if god doesn't deliver us from then he's not faithful no he will Deliver us from the evil one. We're vulnerable and we are weak. I conclude with this, with this story. When we talk about how we want God to be firmly fixed in the crosshairs of our prayers, we're going to praise His character, His name, His, His will, His kingdom. Even our requests are going to be made worshipful because they're not going to be self-centered. They're going to be thinking about corporately the people of God, provision both uh, physical and spiritual power to deal with the things, the the obstacles that life is going to throw us, is uh, the challenges for us. We like to sing and talk about how Jesus is the Lord of our life. The question is, is he the Lord of your prayer life? Do you have the same priorities in prayer that Jesus now just demonstrated for us in the Lord's prayer? In Luke chapter 10, there's a a story of some sibling rivalry. So if you have ever been a parent and seen some of that, congratulations, it's in the Bible. Um, Don't be surprised when it happens. And there happen to be two sisters, and Jesus is coming for a party at their house. And uh, the firstborn, and I know she's the firstborn because she's responsible and she's a busybody. You know, the firstborn is making all the preparations. The house is clean, the candles are lit, you know, um, the floors swept, the hors d'oeuvres are out, you know, the little paper plates, all that kind of stuff is ready to go. And the, um, the other sister, um, man, she's, she just really looks lazy. Because all she wants to do is sit at Jesus' feet and hear every word that comes from his lips. And Martha, 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 Martha. Martha's pretty worked up. She's got her apron on, she's got a towel, dirty towel, dirty rags. She's washing dishes. Say, Jesus, I mean, how many people do you think would show up if Jesus was at your house? You know, Jesus, got oh, all these people in my house. I mean, cleaning all day, knowing you were coming. I didn't even know you were inviting all these other people. You could have told me in advance. And on top of that, my sister's not helping me. He says, Martha, first of all, thank you. You've opened up your home. You've you've sought to be as gracious a host as you can possibly be, except for the fact that you're not extending grace to your sister who knows the most important thing in life to listen, to relate. Not to be busy with all the dirty rags. You, you, you can get that done. This is not a con- commendation of sloppiness or laziness. But you have the opportunity to meet with the master and not go down your list of all the things that you've got to check off. Oh, pray, dear God, thank you, amen. Done for the day. Desire to have a merry Prayer life in a Martha world. You will never face a day when you will not be challenged to hurry up your prayer life, or just get over with, get get it over with, so you can get on with all the important stuff in your day. I love the way Martin Luther talked about it. He he, he wrote in his diary, "There is so much to do today. I must get up at four o'clock in order to have extra time to pray." How many of you, when your day gets deep? think that, hey, now i got to get up earlier so I can make sure that I pray for everything. No, if you're like most people, self-included, if my day's going to be busy, I'm getting as much sleep as I possibly can. Not getting up earlier to pray for the concerns of the day. And so here's my challenge for you. And it's it's an open-ended. This is a, this is a kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. This is not a fixed fixed-choice response. This is not fill in the scantron. Don't fill in the bubble. The Bible says it's not the hearers but the Doers who are blessed, you guys want a blessing, right? Okay, I'm gonna do my best. I can't, I can't give it to you, but I want you to have a blessing this week. Change one thing about your prayer routine. One thing. Get up earlier. Make it a priority. Read through scripture. Pray, pray the scripture back, so your prayer life is actually wed to the Word. Um, intentionally pray with your kids. Get out of whatever the rut is that you're, you're. Prayer life is. If if it's like rub a dub dub, thanks for the grub, put a little more thought into it. That might be a good thing. Um, Intentionally pray with your wife, your spouse. Um, Don't be embarrassed to pray in the break room when you're having lunch. Find the one thing. It doesn't really matter what it is, it just matters that you're doing something to make the prayer priorities that Jesus has laid out for us a reality in your life. Father, we thank you for this. And um, ultimately, we have to pray and ask for your forgiveness for what we have turned the gift of prayer into. You have made it an opportunity for intimate communication, vital relationship, and we have turned it into sitting on Santa's lap and asking for stuff. So Father, we we ask that your spirit take the light of your word and shine it upon our lives to expose those things that are not as pure as we would like for them to be. Father, purify our prayer lives. Help us to help us to be revitalized in our prayer lives so that we pray your priorities, not just our greeds. Father, help us. You have saved us through your Son. You have given us the gift of your Spirit. Help us to honor both and to honor your great name by praying in a way that you are worthy of. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.